welcome to What Were You Thinking? I'm Laura Round and these podcast episodes are brought to you in partnership with the Big Tent Ideas Festival. I am joined by the Patchwork Foundation MP of the Year, Preet Gill MP, who is the Shadow Secretary of State for International Development. If you haven't heard of Patchwork Foundation, they are a great charity working to promote, encourage and support the active participation of young people from disadvantaged and minority communities in British democracy and civil society. Each year, the Patchwork Foundation recognises MPs who have gone above and beyond to help support their community and groups in need as a way to remind MPs and voters alike that representation is integral to our society. Preet Gill has got some amazing examples of what she has done locally of which we discuss in this episode. We also talk about her journey into politics and how she got into the Shadow Cabinet, encouraging young people to engage with politics and the changes in the Labour Party. This podcast is sponsored by the Halo Trust. Halo is the world's leading demining charity headquartered here in the UK. You may well know them from those iconic images of Princess Diana walking through a minefield in Angola. Prince Harry returned to walk in his mother's footsteps just last year. What was once a deadly minefield is now a bustling street. But Prince Harry's visit also highlighted how Halo's work supports conservation and biodiversity loss. Halo's landmine clearance in Angola is helping to prevent harm to the Okavango Delta, home to the world's largest population of African elephants. Halo is committed to supporting people affected by war and armed violence, including in today's most challenging conflicts. But they are more than just demining. Their work truly is inspirational. Preet, congratulations. Patchwork is a great organisation and it has become quite a high profile award to win in Westminster. How do you feel about being the winner? Well, shocked. Um, at, you know, normal kind of reaction that you go through. But like, what an honour, because one of the things when I came into politics is I wanted to do something about young people and making it much easier. Um, I know that, you know, I hear from lots of women um, and people trying to come into politics, just how difficult it is to sort of get mentoring support or even actually know what a politician actually does. Because, you know, a lot of young people have come through my office and said, I didn't realise that this is what MPs do. So, yeah, I mean, real honour um, and just, you know, yeah, amazing. No, it's it's brilliant because, yeah, for the people who are listening who haven't come across Patchwork, it's uh, they are all about encouraging young people from disadvantaged and minority communities to participate in British democracy and civil society and be more active. So I know you, you've got quite a, a great scheme in your constituency that, that I'd love to touch on, on later, but I think, you know, what role do you think politicians can play in promoting uh, this aim of Patchwork? I think there's lots of areas that you can, you know, carry out work in terms of encouraging, especially young people from disadvantaged backgrounds. It's understanding your demographics. So in, in, in Edgbaston, for example, most people will think it's very affluent, but actually we have two wards where debt deprivation, social mobility, unemployment rates are really, really a concern. And one of my things was that actually we should leave no one behind just because people live in certain areas doesn't mean they, they shouldn't have access to, you know, um, coming into an MP's office. So I set up a programme for disadvantaged young people from those areas, really speaking to schools and organisations, sort of saying, please push in, you know, young people to come and have work experience. And since I've been elected in 2017, I've had a young person every week in my office, pretty much. Um, and I would say, you know, it's been 
also great for me and the team because we've learned so much from those young people just about mm. what's going on in their areas you know what, what are the conversations in school what are young people into nowadays so actually it's it's mutually been just amazing and then I've got a school that's been failing of course I'm from the constituency and I went to school here and it's been a school that you know I think has worried so many people that live locally um, and disadvantaged boys from all backgrounds so I set up a scheme with um, constituents actually one of the things when I was campaigning I was blown away as to how many people live in the constituency that are retired that could be scientists or you know have done some amazing jobs and actually want to give back to the community but didn't actually know how to so I mm. thought actually why don't I just do this scheme through schools and connect people in the community to actually support our own like schools you know and I was blown away how many people kind of said absolutely we want to really be part of this and so we had the scheme set up, which the evidence base of it was the outcomes for boys in terms of their reading had actually improved because the scheme was about volunteers going in, listening to young boys with their reading skills and then doing also some math. So I think you can be innovative. I think you can be creative. I think, you know, an MP's role is about bringing people together, you know, recognizing where there is a need. Um, so, yeah, so I think, you know, the onus is on us to really go and find ways that we can you know challenge the some of the disadvantages that young people face um especially in terms of employment opportunities as well those are two amazing examples of what mps can do and why, why do you think not more mps do that especially you know bringing in um young people in in their offices because also by the way my understanding is that you try to prioritize um placements from those from disadvantaged backgrounds who otherwise just would not get that sort of unique opportunity and insight is that is that right yeah absolutely i mean i think you know it does i suppose you know how you uh, lead in terms of your constituency is probably about your own experiences your own you know background your work um the work that you've done so i worked as a children's services manager here in the city i was a counselor next door um you know so i'd always had this passion about young people i always really interested in public sector um, and so working on the front line, you really get to see the impact that policies and legislation that's made in Westminster, what actual impact it has on the ground. So I think having had that experience of being on the front line for nearly 18 years and then now um, you're representing an area and recognising just how difficult sometimes it is to navigate um, services for many, many people in terms of the language, the barriers that they face. Um, so I think, you know, when you are in, in, in these kind of positions, it's about how do you utilise your position um, to actually make the difference that you've always seen. So I think, mm. you know, for me, that was really the driving um, factor behind that. Amazing. And so one of the questions I ask every guest is, is there a person who has had a particular impact on your thinking and, and potentially even, even your politics? Yeah, no doubt my father. Um, I am one of seven. And so my, my dad was always into politics, um, you know, uh, Labour supporter through and through, stood for councillor, wasn't uh, successful. Um, but he was also the president of our local Gurdwara, one of the oldest, um, you know, Gurdwara's seat place of worship in Smethwick. Um, it used to be a church, and so in the 1980s, when he went to acquire it, um, I remember that it was about to go into the, the banks were about to take the building. Um, and my father had managed to get the community to come together and they actually were able to save it um, mm. from being demolished. And then there was a good war. So they feel really, you know, um, amazed that this place was once a place of church. So it's always been a place of worship. 
Um, and my father, you know, he was very, very progressive because it was a recession in Sandwell in the 80s. And so when he became um, the president, I remember there was a factory across the road, it was a cheese factory. Um, and he purchased cheese in, and put it in this white van and all around Sandwell for weeks and weeks and weeks, people were being distributed cheese um, because of the recession. And I remember that time because just remember having to be creative with making dishes with cheese. Um, and, you know, so he was always about changing people's lives. I mean, you know, people used to come to our house and say, your front room is like a railway station. There's a constant flow of people coming <laughs> in and out. And that's because my father would be one of those people that if anyone had any problem, because of course, in the 80s, you didn't have the kind of support services we have today. He would just say, oh, yeah, of course, I can, you know, come over. We can help you. And of course, we was me. Um, so whether it was, uh, you know, doing forms for people, understanding less that they had it could be housing concerns um, and so really you know as a young teenager that was my kind of um, entry into my father's life in terms of actually the needs of the community what he was involved in um, which was really much broader and I and I you know and I remember as a teenager being asked to go and campaign and drop leaflets and used to think god this is really tedious um, but that was the way that my father was he really got us engaged in politics without us realizing and I remember you know, I probably had more of an interest in politics than my siblings. So watching like question time or public affairs issues or having an opinion on something was really mm. something I engaged with my dad and my, my siblings used to think it was very geeky um, <laughs> and could never understand the kind of interest. And I suppose even I didn't really understand my kind of interest in politics because it's only afterwards that you realize that through my dad, that politics is about changing people's lives. It's about, you know, understanding what the needs of your communities are. And, you know, my father came from India at the age of 15. He missed out on completing his education. So for him, you know, education was so important because he realized how many barriers he faced when he was here, just in terms yeah. of trying to support other people. Um, so really, really influential in my life. And um, he was the one that pushed me to become a counselor, actually. Um, I remember I was campaigning, I was pregnant with my first daughter. Um, when I decided to stand for councillor and of course it wasn't easy because I felt lots of barriers um, when I put myself forward as a woman in my ward um, and you know it was a great learning lesson for me though in terms of understanding how the process actually works rather than you know saying I'm going to do this and of course because I've got the background or the skills surely I should be able to do this role and it was only then that my father really explained to me how it actually works and told me not to you know not to for not to give up really in a way because i think after four years of being not back um it kind of just make you think whether you really want to do something so um mm. actually down to his support i i became elected um as a councillor in my ward and that was pretty much amazing and it was my father's dream that he wanted me to become an mp actually um and it's something that i think i always thought about but never really took action to think about what could that look like? What would that, what would that pathway be like? Um, and then, you know, I lost my father in 2014. Um, mm, you know, I'm he sorry. had a bleed. Yeah, he had a bleed to the brain, very unexpected. Um, and of course, I got elected in 2017. So he really never got to see that. Um, but, you know, it, it was what was remarkable, though, is even though he wasn't there in 2017, when I was knocking doors in my constituency, I was just blown away as to the amount of people he knew that told me a story about how he changed their lives or, you know, how he went out of their, his way to help them. 
And that was so heartening because I thought even though he's not here, he's actually helping me um, because, you know, all these people sort of remember him and his legacy of what he did. And here he is, you know, present um, during my election. And so, yeah, he's, he was hugely influential. It's been a huge loss in a way. Um, but then, you know, it's, it's his values, his teachings that keep me, um, you know, going forward. And I want to inspire my daughters as well. I want them to think that, you know, it's okay for women to want to be um, successful and for women to go out and speak their, you know, their minds and say what it is that is important in terms of that perspective. Totally, um, yeah. Yeah, so, so yeah, so I, I do really miss him. I, you know, I wish he was here to see, you know, where we've got to, because he really cared about the issues. I mean, you know, not having representation for a community is always a little bit difficult, even though you have some great MPs who represent all their communities, it, you know, understanding your own community's needs and how many years they've been trying to just access, um, you know, justice for themselves. I think, you know, you only realise when you get into Parliament just how much work actually needs doing and just how long it takes, really. So, yeah. That's um, that's an incredible story. And uh, it's nice to, to have... Um, a father mentioned as well because we've had lots of mums <laughs> we've been putting the spotlight on this show and it, it just shows again just you know the power of, of of parents um what would you say the place is that's impacted your life and thinking um I mean, obviously, my home life um, was just extraordinary growing up. I mean, one of seven, um, you know, I saw both my parents work. My mom was a seamstress at home. My father was a bus driver. So they'd do different shifts um, and make ends meet. And I, I, I would remember staying up, you know, after my siblings had gone to bed and helping my mum, whether it, she was sewing anoraks and putting them together or putting the beads on them until midnight and, you know, feeling that she's there on her own. And then having to wake up the next morning. Um, and and as, a, as, a, as a young girl, I had to grow up very quickly because I had to be very responsible and really support my mum with domestic chores. Um, and, you know, kind of, you know, in some ways when I look back, didn't have the kind of childhood I would have wanted, but in a way had a childhood that kind of made me who I am today. My grandparents lived with us, so we lived in an extended family. So I grew up with, you know, this sense of lots of people being around all the time because they would want to come and visit, whether it was family and I've got a very, very big family. So growing up, you know, in that sort of space and, and, and you know, uh, the kind of experiences that I had, of course, growing up in Birmingham in the 80s and 90s was very different to what it is today. You know, people, you know, young people being out on the streets, being able to feel safe that they can play in their own communities um, is, is some of my fondest memories of just being free of just as a child being able to go and explore. And, you know, that is so much more difficult um, nowadays. And so, you know, for me, home was always that place of like where I was encouraged or um, I could just be myself as well. But, you know, looking back, you, you do really you do have a sense of value for family because you know if there's anything that this pandemic has shown us as well is just how much people are probably taking time to reflect and value those relationships and how we take them for granted because we're so used to communicating on social media that you know um talking to each other picking up the phone um i remember when you know i was younger and um when i went to university writing letters back home 
was quite a thing, you know, and I've got some of them where you just remember, you know, what it was like to kind of communicate what you felt and you took the time to think about those kind of memories. Mm. So when you read them now, it's yeah. quite, it, because, you know, you, you forget a lot of things. So actually through letters, you are able to kind of reflect on the feeling and the sense of what home was all about, really. Um, and so for me, you know, home was difficult but it was certainly somewhere that I always felt safe and uh, I really enjoyed my childhood with my siblings and, and mm. my wider extended family, something I really, really value. And I think, you know, one good thing about my parents was they kept um, our contact back home in India. So we, we did go and visit our families. Um, I would say that was another place that when I was, um, you know, second year of my university, I went and worked with street children in India and I did my final year degree. Um, and that really um, was quite fascinating because, you know, being a young woman, nine months in a country on your own, um, studying at university, but then actually having to navigate the place all by yourself. And it's quite daunting as well, because, you know, it can be quite, um, I think, scary for women as well, being out there on their own. And I had some incidents there. But I suppose what, what that also gave me was a sense of exploring who I am, you know, finding books and music that I enjoyed, but also, you know, when I was there, I think the poignant thing for me was um, in 1984, there was a genocide of Sikhs in Delhi. And I was near the widow's colony, as it was referred to at the time. And I remember going to visit these women in what were very slum dwelling huts. And 10 years after the genocide of their, you know, families being killed, um, they pretty much felt forgotten. And I remember walking down the kind of alleys and smelling the sewer and thinking, I, I can't believe that this is the kind of justice that these women that went through so much, and this is where they now live. Um, and I remember sitting down and speaking to them about, you know, what, what they'd gone through. Um, and I just remember being, you, you know, coming away from there thinking, actually the world's forgotten these women 10 years later. Um, and, you know, we have a duty, you know, to fight for justice. And actually what is my role sitting, you know, in a democracy where I can probably speak up about human rights as opposed to many people that can't in their own respective countries, you know, what, what is my purpose? And it kind of really made me question the very things my father used to, to teach us, which is, you know, you're brought into this world to do something, to leave, you know, your mark here. And he used to say to us, he said, it's all very well, you go to university and you study and you learn and you can apply that to your life and you can be successful, but what about your community? What about the wider um, you know, world? What about what else you give? Because surely that's, you know, it can't just be that. And I think, you know, for me, India and home as a place, those are the kind of things it always made me think about is, you know, what about others? And you were also the first female Sikh MP to be elected. Um, do you feel a lot of responsibility with that, with that position? Yeah, absolutely. Um, responsibility because, you know, it's the, the, the last um, prominent seat woman was Sophia Dilip Singh, who was a suffragette um, 100 years ago, though, um, you know, uh, and she was the goddaughter of Queen Victoria. Um, so, you know, really prominent, but something, you know, something that a lot of people in this country and especially Sikhs have only learned about in the last decade about her history and um, the pioneering work that she did. Um, so, you know, so for it to have taken 100 years to elect the first seat female MP does say a lot about especially my community, but just democracy, um, because, you know, Parliament has to reflect the people it serves. Um, and it has just taken that long. And I, I hope it's not going to take that long again. And I want to encourage many more young women from diverse backgrounds to really 
um, fulfill their dream if it's politics, whatever it might be, um, you know, um, don't really uh, hold back is what I would say. Mm. Um, yeah. And now you are in the shadow cabinet. <laughs> so, you know, that's uh, that's an incredible journey from from what you just described as helping people uh, filling out letters and becoming a counsellor and, uh, you know, being inspired by your father. And within what is it, three years of then being elected, uh, you're a shadow cabinet. So that is a huge accomplishment. Um, and uh, you're and so just to make sure I get this right, because I was going to describe you as um, shadow secretary of state for international development. Is that still your title despite the merger? Is. Yeah, because you want to show <laughs> that's because you obviously very much believe that there should be a department or what? what's the reasoning behind that? Well, I was really, really encouraged that firstly, Keir as an internationalist really cares about development and it's a priority for him. And what he didn't want to do was mirror what the government um, has done, because, you know, we absolutely believe that diplomacy and development are two very different things um, and very distinct. And of course, you know, the reason we have our reputation as global Britain um, and our standing in the world is because of independent institutions like, you know, international development, world renowned. So the takeover has been seen as an institutional vandalism, pretty much. It's it's destroying our reputation around the world. I mean, the very fact that, you know, the cut through in terms of since the takeover took place, I mean, world leaders, you know, businesses, um, people from all kind of backgrounds, really, really concerned uh, about what the government has done. Um, pretty much taken a sledgehammer to our reputation abroad. Um, so yeah, so you know, Keir was really clear that you know we should retain myself and the team. Um, but of course, we are shadowing Rob in terms of his development priorities and what he will be doing. But let's wait and see because I think many of us can remember the Pergo Dam scandal. Um, but this just seems to be a very political choice because, of course, uh, when respective governments have come in, they've always tried to change the department or how it should function. Um, but I think the global challenges ahead of us means that, you know, we'll have to rethink what the kind of department would need to look like and, and to do because pandemic preparedness is something that really is going to be a concern for the future. And this has really got to sit under DFID or development priority um, going forward because this won't be um, the last pandemic that we see. So I think it's, you know, it's been really encouraging that Keir is so committed to development, but also, I mean, I think the wider sector and the response back has been, you know, people have really appreciated that Labour uh, are committed to development. And so what, what are Labour's priorities for international development? Well, look, my first priority, given what's happened with the takeover and now the announcement of the cuts from 0.7 to 0.5, is to really work across the house because, you know, development is something that is beyond party politics. Um, there is so much support across the house and actually this is a department that really unites not just members of parliament but the public in terms of our role as one of the richest nations in the world and the good that we do, um, you know, in terms of wanting to reduce poverty and address inequalities. But my, you know, one of my priorities is to work with members across the house to really oppose this move and to hold the government to account. Because, you know, whilst they've made a statement to the house about the reduction, what we don't know is how the legislation is going to change, what else is going to happen. All of this has been announced ahead of an integrated review. And so, you know, you had announcement of defence budget of a takeover 
but actually we have no strategy in terms of what is our foreign development and defence strategy going forward and we need to absolutely make sure that development is at the heart of it and I think you know the Biden administration just gives us so much hope because I know that he's going to reset those values of internationalism of globalization of wanting to work you know collaboratively and I think that is absolutely right I think that's going to put pressure on the British government to really step up because they have pretty much retreated during this pandemic um, you know in a way that's been really really disappointing because actually there's been secondary impacts of Covid across the world and of course there is conflict none of those things actually stop just because because we're dealing with a pandemic they still uh you know the very fact that we'll see more more people pushed into poverty the fact that three billion people around the world still don't have access to wash facilities that should be a basic human right i mean in the absence of a vaccine that's all many people around the world have to keep themselves safe um so you know it and then the focus has obviously been on the pandemic response and now the secondary impacts of the pandemic um and absolutely trying to find out from the government what it is that they're going to cut what is going to be the impact of that? And actually, are we going to be paying for this much later on, um, further ahead? But, I, but you know, I, like many others, I was really um, quite concerned that the uh, Foreign Secretary didn't mention poverty reduction as a priority in terms of ODA spend. And I think that is so important because, you know, we've made huge strides, but we all know that there's so much more to do. So those are really some of the kind of key areas at this moment in time in terms of what my priorities are. Mm. And then next year, the UK government is hosting the, the replenishment for the Global Partnership for Education. What would you like to see on the back of that? Yeah, I mean, I think, look, um, uh, of course, we need to make sure, you know, just as we've been impacted here in the UK with, you know, children missing out on so much on education. We know across the Global South, for example, girls that don't are not in education now, are not likely to return. So, I mean, what we're going to see in many countries is not just the fact that people have missed out on education, actually they may have missed out now for many, many years because the threat of child marriage, FGM, and so many other issues are also very relevant there. I mean, you know, this was a manifesto, Tory manifesto commitment about girls' education, yet we've seen the cuts to girls' education in Rwanda, um, and, and actually no detail. So, you know, for me, I want to, my passion points in terms of going forward are that we've got to have a global health strategy. We haven't had one. You know, it, it, some of the things I want us to export from UK is the NHS, something we should all be proud of, you know, but something that we should want that other countries can invest in. And actually, you know, um, when there's future pandemics or health concerns, especially secondary impacts, you know, we've seen many countries have something like four ICU beds, a lack of ventilators. I mean, it just can't be right that we have entered this pandemic so unequally and the world is just going to get much, much more unequal. But I suppose the approach that we want to take is a partnership approach. I don't want to tell countries what it is that we should be doing there. Actually, it's for, for them to tell us about what the priorities are. Where is the need? Um, you know, debt is another concern. You know, so many countries are having to think about debt payments as opposed to thinking about the health of their own mm. citizens. That just can't be right. You know, we've got to be pushing private creditors. Um, the G20 has got to do a lot more. We've got to see leadership. We're going to have the leadership of G7 next year. Uh, we've really got to galvanise support, you know, because we all know about, you know, this is going to be a global health and economic impact. Um, and then leave no one behind. I mean, you know, the 2030 agenda is really going to get pushed back. You know, there's a real challenge on all of us to think about actually how do we even try to get back to a place where we can start pushing some of those initiatives. And that's why we can't take our eye off 
the ball on secondary impacts and all the other kind of projects that we are um, doing. And so there's a lot of work that the team are also working on. We're really excited about, you know, something I did in, as a minister was um, thinking about a feminist development policy, looking at things from a gendered lens. I think it's so important. We don't always see that, you know, we don't see it here. I mean, the impact of women in terms of COVID and um, jobs is, is absolutely disproportionately going to impact, uh, impact women. Um, so, you know, it's, it's no different around the world. And we've seen how many healthcare, how many women work in the healthcare sector, for example, as well. So there is so much to do and there is so much, you know, I'm really excited about because what, one thing I have seen is the kind of solidarity from the UK public around, for people around the world. And this idea that, you know, red wall seats or people in the UK don't like talking about development or they don't really care about the world's poorest. I don't buy that for one moment because I think, you know, the onus is on us as politicians to think about our language and our framing of these conversations. How do we build that piece of solidarity? How do we let people know in Wigan or in Birmingham, for example, that domestic abuse here is just as, just if not worse actually for women especially in conflict situations where there is no support services, where we are very fortunate to kind of have the structures that many, many countries just do not have and therefore women don't have the protections that they do. And I think, you know, especially around health um, and vaccines, this is somewhere that the British public have just been absolutely um, on board and, and understanding that, you know, we need to work together. We need to make sure now that the vaccine is going to be equitable because, you know, the pandemic has crossed borders. So, um, yeah, absolutely. So that's another piece. I think we need to continue to, you know, work with the public to get them to understand why development is important, why we make the commitment of 0.7. I think that's something that's got to be a constant conversation, something we shouldn't fear, fear and shouldn't shy away from. Yeah, that's definitely something that hasn't been communicated much. I, I would agree with that statement. Um, what um, what do you believe the role of a private sector can be in in achieving the twenty thirty sustainable development goals? I think you know absolutely huge role that they could play. I mean, I was really really encouraged. Um, Lord McConnell, who is the chair of the APPG for Sustainable Development Goals, um, did an event in Parliament actually with some of the very big corporate businesses, really really well attended. But actually, they were talking about their supply chains how the SDGs actually apply to their, uh, you know, the trade deals that they do, you know, how they invest in various countries, you know, thinking about actually how we, you know, taking out resources from countries, not paying taxes, what is the impact of that for British companies as well, more broadly. So I think, you know, um, I, I, I think there's a huge role for, for the private sector. And I think, you know, getting them on board just really just showcases that actually we all have a role to play. It isn't just about civil society, it isn't just governments, um, it isn't just other countries, it's all of us in this together. Um, so I've been really encouraged at the moment with the kind of response that the private sector have, have put forward. Great. And just to pick up on what you said about the change in administration in the United States, which I think is is absolutely, um, you know, could not be more, 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 more of a change, sort of night and day. And as you say, in particular with the approach to international cooperation, and um, I've already heard that the Democrat team have asked, you know, they're asking quite a lot of questions about international development, as far as I'm hearing. But they're also very interested, and Joe Biden in particular, in climate change. And the UK is hosting COP26 next year. What what are you asking government to 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 focus on and and what do you want to see from this cop 26 because it's my impression 
that this is probably one of the first COPs in a while, if not ever, probably ever, that the population, uh, the public are engaged in, they actually know what it is, there's a lot of expectations and hype, which is brilliant and very exciting, but it does does put a bit more pressure <laughs> on the government to to deliver something. What 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 is your what yeah, what do you hope to see? Yeah, I mean, this is something that we are discussing at this moment in time, because, of course, you know, with the pandemic, climate has taken a bit of a backseat. You know, it hasn't been at the forefront of um, so many governments' mind. But actually, when we think about building back better, thinking about, you know, um, the, the jobs that we need to create for the future, they are going to be green jobs. The challenge is, how do you communicate that to the wider public? How do they understand what do green jobs or uh, green manufacturing jobs actually look like? And I think, you know, some of the language that we do use around, um, you know, climate change, um, you, you know, has alienated a lot of people, actually. So some of the polling does actually show um, that, especially in, here in the United Kingdom, people don't always understand um, why it's, and it hasn't always been a priority for a lot of people, because I don't think we've made the case of, talking about how we transition, um, you know, uh, in terms of our energy sources, in terms of how we're going to create some of those jobs, um, especially post-Brexit. So, I mean, one of the things that we've been pushing the government to do, and whilst they, you know, give the rhetoric, we find more information that just shows that they're not committed to it, is to end all fossil fuel um, investments. And the thing, thing is, you know, at the disp dispatch box, the government says, yes, of course, we're not going to um, be investing in this, but then we find out more information that they have continued to do this. And I, I think, you know, they've got to really make a commitment because ahead of, as you said, COP26 leadership, how do you galvanize support? How do you bring other leaders to be as ambitious as you if you yourself are not actually doing the very things that you say that you're going to do? And I think this is a real challenge for the government in terms of um, how ambitious it's going to be, what is going to be the detail, how are they going to get countries together to think about uh, whether it's carbon tax, for example, um, you know, absolutely, you know, there's just so much to do. And but that requires cooperation, it requires leadership. And I think, you know, the challenge is going to be that we've seen this government retreat from the world stage pretty much. Um, so, you know, our, what is, you know, I, I'm looking forward to looking at the detail, but I'm just really keen to see how they are going to manage to get other countries to be as ambitious, um, given the sort of past nine months. And, um, just to touch on the fact that in these three years that you've been in Parliament, um, the Labour Party has gone through an awful lot and has, has changed quite significantly. From your perspective, what is what are the biggest changes that you that you've witnessed, and how yeah, how would you describe the changes? Gosh, yes, a huge amount of changes. But I mean, of course, you know, when we were elected in 2017, the last three years has just been very difficult because Parliament has pretty much been talking about Brexit and you know, that has dominated the kind of politics. And, you know, lots of MPs say, this it's never been like this. This is a really strange time, you know, that you are experiencing because it was very new to them as well. Um, certainly it wasn't going to be, many of us didn't think we were going to have another election so straight away after being elected, um, that's for sure. And I think what that does is is quite unsettling because, you know, you want to get into parliamentary work and really get stuck in, but then you've got an eye on your constituency because you're, knowing that an election is about to come up, um, which, you know, really makes it difficult. The one thing I'm really encouraged with, though, is that under the new leadership, so since Keir has become leader, the message of, you know, really uniting the party 
um, the commitment to unite the party, um, you know, and to create a vision and, you know, address the kind of internal issues so that we can absolutely go out there and build trust out in the country, um, you know, and have some great policies that are you know, resonate with people because we're out there engaging and listening. That is absolutely right. You know, we cannot take for granted um, where the British public are about politics and especially about the Labour Party. And the onus is on us to go out there and really listen um, and take on board what it is that they're saying and try to build that trust. And, and I'm really encouraged that Keir is doing that. Um, you know, his commitment to um, the party, but just also the country has just been there for everyone to see. He's shown some real great leadership, I have to say. That's really, really encouraged me. It's, it's great to hear when you're out in the streets that people talk about the leader in such a positive way and say, actually, they think he's doing a great job. Um, you know, and yeah, it's, 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 that, that's been really encouraging. It's been very positive. It's been positive in the membership. It just feels that we're getting through the things that we need to do in terms of, you know, being outward facing as opposed to really looking inwards. Um, mm. And that's absolutely right. That's got to be the way that the Labour Party goes. So yeah, it's, it's, it's been um, quite a journey. <laughs> Big change. And so what object would you say has had an impact on, on your thinking? Am I thinking? Well, um, when I was at university, I, I used to love reading. I always have been in the library and I came across a book um, uh, of a writer and a poet, Khalil Gibran, called The Prophet, that really started a journey of int my interest into the kind of literature I wanted to read. So he was a um, poet, but I mean, um, you know, at a time, you know, you know, where in the Arab world, life would have been very much um, different and so I always like those kind of independent thinker type of books and that got me into reading things like Jack Kerouac on the road the beatnik travelers you know I, I, I was a bit of a nomadic kind of person thinking about oh, I'd love to travel and that was always my kind of experience so finding books that then just got me interested and was able to kind of I was able to take a journey on was just fascinating because it then encouraged me to really travel after I finished university mm. um, and which I did and when I was in university I, I, I went and worked and lived on a kibbutz in Israel I did Camp America you know, I was in India working. And I think, you know, having these kind of cross-cultural perspectives of how different places function uh, was just really fascinating. I, I just think, you know, that kind of learning that you go through is is so valuable. Um, and yeah, so some amazing experiences I definitely had. Amazing. Just to finish off, I've got some quick fire questions. Um, and the first one is, um, who is your favourite non-Labour politician? <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness me, that's a question. Um, gosh, um, actually, the, um, what was his name? He was uh, the International Development Secretary. Rory Stewart. Rory Stewart, yes, I'm going to say Rory. There you yeah. go. Rory Stewart yeah and um what is the sort of the most bizarre thing that you've encountered as a politician whether that's on your travels or in the house of commons that it just you know a funny a funny moment pinch yourself moment um 
I think, look, you know, when you're, it's, it's really interesting because when you go to Westminster, you still are quite awestruck in your first year when you see various people because, you know, these are the people you've been watching on TV and, you know, you, you've taken a view on them. And of course, now you're suddenly there and now you get to see people in their real sense in terms of who they are. And, you know, you're not as much in awe, uh, you know, you realise that. <laughs> Never but, but meet yeah. your heroes. <laughs> but I always felt like that when I go past a, like, you know, Theresa May or something, I'd a bit you know wow that was a bit um in, in all really uh just just the way that she carries herself but um funny moments gosh i don't i can't really think um yes i'm gonna pass on that one <laughs> <laughs> no worries and then finally what is the best advice you've ever received um i mean the best advice is um you know it's just be yourself you know is find you know find who you are i think that that's one of the really interesting things that i've learned about becoming an mp it's really difficult to shape your identity straight away because you are learning so much and you know um you're conscious of that as well but then you need to find out what kind of a politician you are you know what is it that sort of um inspires you what are the things that kind of drive you what's going to really make you um um you know get up and uh, yeah so it's 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 being able to find that kind of inspiration in every moment and i have to say pretty much as as in children's services one of the things that um i absolutely loved was that i could wake up in them every day as difficult as the job was but really be inspired and that was because of the people i work with um you know who inspire you who show that kind of commitment and passion and keep you going because it is you know some days it's really tough so um you know i i, I would absolutely say you know the best advice is you know just just really be yourself and you know enjoy the people around you i think you know there's something to be said i i, I feel really lucky that i've had an amazing team ever since i've been um in parliament and actually if it wasn't for them i couldn't do most of the things that i do um and and just having people that are kind of have the same value base um and the passion i think it makes it much um easier but yeah so i my my thing is to everybody is you know write down what it is that you want in your life but be specific and, and have a path, plan and a pathway for the next sort of five years and think about it even if you don't know but just try and sit down and spend time with yourself because just doing that piece of exercise of being with yourself of thinking through these questions is not that easy actually because when you have to really be specific it really does challenge you and make you think um and but actually there's something about making that commitment of putting it in writing and, and taking the time to think about what is you know the things that drive you what do you want to do in the future where do you want to be how are you going to get there um and the other piece of advice that people gave me is always seek a mentor and i think that's something i've always done throughout my career life is try and find somebody that i look up to that can challenge me and help me grow i think that's so important this can be quite a lonely job you know in in the sense that you're not constantly other than from your constituents getting feedback about your performance and i think you know you do need to, to be able to talk to someone in confidence about how you feel um and the things that you go through i think you know it, it's so important preet thank you so much for coming on so as you know this episode is supported by the patchwork foundation because they've just celebrated their mp of the year award uh, of which preet was the winner and the patchwork foundation is a charity group working to promote encourage and support the active participation of young people from disadvantaged and minority communities in british democracy and civil society 
And every year, the Patchwork Foundation recognises MPs who have gone above and beyond to help support their community and groups in need. And I'm very excited to have a patchworker with us to top off this episode. And this is the first time we've done this, so it's very exciting. And we are joined by May Patel, who is a patchworker. And May, welcome. And would you like to introduce yourself? Um, name, age, job title? Tell us about yourself. Hiya, um, it's great to be here. Um, my name's May. I'm 26 and I currently work as a policy advisor and I'm a voluntary executive member of the Patchwork Foundation as well. Cool. And where, where are you a policy advisor? Um, at the Financial Ombudsman Service. <laughs> Ooh, wow. Yeah. Very yeah. impressive. And so how did you discover Patchwork Foundation? Um, I actually discovered the Patchwork Foundation at university. They hosted lectures with a range of different political leaders from uh, different backgrounds, and I heard them explain their personal stories about how they got there. Mm, and you could tell that the foundation played a significant part in that. Yeah, uh, they, yeah. I got all of the emails. They hosted everything <laughs> um, from them, and it was great. Yeah, yeah. No, that's really good. And so, and so, what is, um, or what, you know, why? I mean, you've kind of given us a bit of a flavour already, but why is Patchwork Foundation important to you? Um, the Patchwork Foundation, I think, it's personally presented me with loads of opportunities and I see it present loads of my friends and people who kind of have similar experiences to me or similar kind of face the same kind of adversities as me um, the opportunity to meet these political leaders from not just MPs from civil servants journalists who have a story where they've also faced a similar sort of adversity to get where they are and you've had the chance to learn from them and understand so much more about them and how they're kind of what works behind in the political <laughs> spectrum I guess yeah mm. and so why for you do we need greater diversity and inclusion in politics and civil society I mean it's kind of you know it's it's it's, it's a no-brainer really but what what is the personal reason for you that you think this is really important um I think having diversity and inclusion in politics uh ultimately gives better resolutions mm. uh, I think if we have a range of people who face different challenges from their unique backgrounds I think together they present the most efficient effective resolutions which are actually kind of all encompassing for wider society I think they kind of make them I think it's in the word inclusive right so yeah. <laughs> I think it includes everyone uh, and I think that's really important yeah and so if there's anyone listening who um thinks gosh this sounds really interesting and I want to get involved um how can they do that well they can uh, hashtag get involved <laughs> that's one of our <laughs> hashtags but very also, good I know, um, uh, but yeah they can uh, just look, look us up on google uh, look at our websites we've got a masterclass program which encourages young people to kind of attend our program where we they, we have a range of they meet, they meet a range of different people. So they meet the journalists, MPs, like I said before, um, and get the chance to have an open debate and discussion with them and learn about more about their stories. Um, we also, uh, uh, in the canvas, um, we support a range of different political parties. So we all sorts of parties, the so Green Party, Lib Dems, Labour, Conservatives, we, we do all of them. Um, so there's a chance to kind of attend their conferences and also meet the prominent MPs from their parties and talk to them. If they go to the website, they can find a little contact form, send an email and they'll, they'll get a response and uh, yeah. 
Great. Well, thank you so much for coming on, May. It's really nice to, to speak to you and, and uh, hear more about the Patchwork Foundation, which sounds, well, I've come across it before and it is a brilliant, brilliant organisation. So thank you very much. Thank you, Laura. Thanks for having me. Cheers. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. This series is in partnership with the Big Tent Ideas Festival and you can become a friend of the Big Tent and receive the first three months completely free by entering the coupon code PODCAST. Friends benefit from invitations to exclusive, intimate events with politicians and leaders and much, much more. Visit bigtent.org.uk for further details and to join. If you have any requests for speakers or any specific questions you really think I should put to these people, please email me on podcast at bigtent.org.uk or get in touch via Twitter. I'm at Laura Round. Thank you. Until the next one.